0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, conservative leadership candidates amplify their attacks on Pierre Polyev's numbers.
1: I don't know that they're deliberately not telling the truth, but I can give you one incident. A number of my supporters received an email from the Polyev camp, which looked like an official email from the party saying, you're not registered, you can't vote. And so the last few days, they actually renewed on that membership site,
0: which they thought was an official party site. More scrutiny and questions about the government's plans to deal with delays at Canada's airports. I can't commit to you exactly, but is a, there's a sense of urgency to do this, but we want to do it right. We want to understand the real bottlenecks and we want to address them uh, accurately and properly. And Marco Mendicino will face more questions about invoking the Emergencies Act. Prime Minister, myself, And all the members of our government, partners in provincial government uh, and law enforcement were working 24-7 to restore public safety. We saw with our own eyes the significant and devastating impacts of the blockades to our economy, to people's safety. It's Monday, June 13th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Good morning, Peter. Morning, Mike. Let's start with the conservative leadership race. There are a couple of interesting themes that have developed over the last few days, and I'm sure will be front and center this week. Uh, one of them, of course, is the membership numbers. Uh, and and there are already, as we've seen over the last few days, uh, other candidates are disputing Pierre Poiliev's campaign claim that that they sold 311 or 312,000 memberships. Uh, they're saying that's not the case, but... Uh, whether it's that exact number or not, there seems to be now that the the deadline for selling memberships has passed. There seems to be a bit of a shift going on in this race, where everybody is turning their attention to Pierre Poiliev and trying to convince people that he's not going to win this and not going to win it on the first ballot.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think what's what's happening is there. You know, there's there's more and more evidence uh, that. He's he's the front runner. That he's the you know the the odds on favorite to win at this point, and it's hard to see a scenario uh, where he gets stopped. So you're you're going to see the attacks on Pierre Polyev amplify uh, everything from he's not fit to govern the country. He you know he could win the the conservative leadership. But he's not fit to govern the country. So don't waste your time voting for him. To challenging his numbers, we've seen that the last couple of days. Uh, Jean Charest challenged him, to be calling now calling uh, you know Polyev's uh, membership uh, recruitment uh, numbers uh, claimed by the Polyev camp Pierre Inflation, you know, right. sort of riffing off uh Polyab's attacks on Justin Trudeau, calling uh, the current economic situation just inflation. So you attacking Pierre Polyev's numbers, attacking what Pierre Polyev's policies are, attacking, you know, what they say is Pierre Polyev's inability to win uh but other things are happening too and and you know you, you look at the sort of narrative from the other camps uh talking about uh, you know answering questions well there's still a path of victory refusing to give out their numbers patrick brown you know being asked and you know musing about the possibilities of running for mayor brampton again a decision he's got to make in august before the, the leadership race so the fact that you know, Patrick Brown is, is raising that possibility and having to answer questions about it uh, probably, you know, undermines, undermines the camp, his campaign and his, you know, perceived ability to, to catch Pierre probably ever knock him off. And what's interesting to me in the, in the Patrick Brown's story: When Patrick Brown is, you know, says he won't, uh, you know, you know he won't run for office if Pierre Polyev is the conservative leader, and you know uh, he, he hasn't shut the door on returning uh, to the race for for Mayor Brandt and the job he, he currently holds, uh, says something really interesting and ties in Mark to the membership stuff. You know, I've talked about this before. Patrick Brown won the one, you know, the uh, the leadership of the. Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario, which he won and then uh, gave up. He won it by outselling Christine Elliott's team on memberships and by a by a far, a far margin. So he knows how to sell memberships, and he knows how important selling memberships are to winning a conservative to, to winning a leadership race. So if he's musing about the fact that he you know is leaving open the possibility of going back to his job, uh, suggests to me that. Uh, maybe he actually thinks Pierre Polyev's numbers are right uh, and if he thinks Polyev has that much of a lead uh, being a, an expert at what it means to sell memberships then maybe he sees the writing on the wall
0: yeah that's a really good point and uh, i find that fascinating too when you when you have somebody this far from the the date that the votes will be cast uh, already Even even briefly mentioning an exit plan that that says a lot, because, of course, if Pierre Poiliev is not going to win the leadership, most people feel that it's either going to be Patrick Brown supporters lining up behind Jean Charest or Jean Charest supporters lining up behind Patrick Brown and that there have to be enough of both to to surpass 50 percent. Um, and if that if that uh, path to victory, as it's often called, is if that's not there, then then we might see people running for the exits, right?
1: Yeah, and it's also, you know, time is a really important issue uh, in this leadership campaign, and uh, the other candidates don't aren't going to have a lot of it and this i think you're going to see this conversation amplified too you know the party says there are going to be well over 600,000 members eligible to vote nobody knows exactly what the number is nobody knows exactly uh has confirmation um how many memberships have been sold and how many have been sold by each camp some of the camps are telling us some of the camps are but the bottom line is the party is saying look we have to do this vetting process we have to validate all of these memberships, and it could take uh, you know a few weeks. Uh, the deadline is; uh, they're promising, you know, by the end of July um, they'll have these lists out to the parties, and maybe it'll be before that. I suspect it will be, but you know, the more number of days go by without the other candidates getting a shot at these membership lists, if Pierre, if, it, if we find out Pierre probably have actually did uh, sell all those memberships, and. Um, you know, he's he's well poised to try and you know turn turn that membership uh, sales number into you know, votes at the ballot box for the leadership. And, you know, by the time the other camps get that information and try to contact those people on the list, it gets harder and harder to dissuade them uh, from their choice uh, of Pierre Polyev if, if that's the choice they're making based on the membership sales. You know, they they run out of time for to reach these people. Right now, they can't reach them, um, certainly not in any official way because they don't have the list, you know, vetted and confirmed by the party. So, again, advantage Polyev.
0: Yeah. All right, Peter, let's turn to a couple of other things we'll be watching this week. And uh, there's there's obviously been an enormous amount of scrutiny on what's happening at Canada's airports, especially Pearson Airport in Toronto. Um, there was even a Conservative MP over the weekend saying he's not going back there until the travel mandates are, are lifted. Um, and uh, the government's going to get asked a lot of questions about this because there are people who feel... That, that these measures are no longer necessary and they're causing a lot of disruption. Not everybody feels that, but some people do. So uh, what what do you expect the government's response to be and how much scrutiny will, will there be on this in the days ahead?
1: Well, lots of scrutiny. Uh, the questions are going to keep coming. Uh, the government's. I think you're going to see, uh, you know, uh, incremental steps, more and more hiring, more and more. Uh, perhaps easing of some kinds of restrictions, as we saw last Friday, they, they you know, dropped the random testing for, uh, suspended it rather, random testing for the, for the month of June uh, for vaccinated travelers arriving, you know, back in Canada. They're still going to be testing unvaccinated travelers. They have to get a test. And then in July, they're going to move it all off-site for everybody um, that needs to be tested. They're going to move it off-site from the airports. But, you know, I came through Pearson Airport uh, from a foreign flight in in mid-April, Mark, and it was a gong show back then, so there's been lots of um, warning, lots of evidence that this was going to get worse. You know, in April was when some of the travel was starting to to reopen. People were starting to move around again internationally, and it's only, uh, you know, it's only increased uh, exponentially in the last couple of months. So there was lots of warning that this was going to be a mess because it was a mess back then. And so there are going to be lots of questions about why this continues to happen. There are some limits to what the government can do. Let's be clear. They've, you know, some of this i heard when i was coming through there in april was uh, toronto airport issues staffing uh lack of staffing people home with covid tests people home with covid symptoms so it's a manpower issue it's a um it, it's perhaps a a, a covid um, restrictions issue there's lots of moving parts here but the federal government no matter what the moving parts are, people are going to be looking to the federal government because they're the ones who control the, the vaccine mandates. They control the national uh, direction of the pandemic response. And this is international travel. So the federal government still going to be compelled and, and uh, questioned and pressured to, uh, even if some of the problems aren't uh, are under their direct control, uh, to get a handle on this and get a handle on it quickly.
0: Yeah all right finally peter uh speaking of more questions i think we're going to be hearing a lot more about marco mendicino this week there will be questions asked of him and others about uh the the invoking of the emergencies act um in in response to the convoy of protesters in downtown ottawa in february uh so where do you see this story going in the days ahead
1: uh right where it's been headed which is the search for answers and uh the search for concrete answers and confirmation that uh, is clear to people in in terms of the government story. The government story has been uh, the law enforcement agencies asked for the Emergencies Act than it was, well, they asked for the powers available only in the Emergencies Act. Uh, Almost every, I think every head of the police forces involved has said they didn't specifically ask for the Emergencies Act. So who did uh, did anybody, uh, did the government, uh, you know, just make this decision saying uh, we're not going to let this go on any anymore in the absence of uh, what appears to be the ability to, of police to do this and the building pressure on us to look like we're not doing enough, uh, we're invoking the Emergencies Act. So it, it, there's kind of a, a, a very windy road here of, of how this decision was made in terms of clarity. Uh, you know what? What is the bottom line here? Did somebody in, in the law enforcement business say, we can't do anything else without the Emergencies Act, or did they not? Yeah. And right now, that's an open question, and uh, the government hasn't been clear uh, from a number of different ministers, except to say that. Uh, Look, uh, we had conversations with the police and uh, they uh, talked to us about some of the things they needed and from there we took the step to invoke the Emergencies Act. So committee hearings continue this week. Uh, We're going to hear from, uh, we're going to see the uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister is going to be at the hearings, the Emergency Preparedness Minister, Bill Blair. So there's going to be a lot more questions. And the opposition parties clearly, uh, and largely this is driven by the Conservatives, are going to be trying to poke holes in in the narrative and see if they can find any other sort of weak links uh, to try and determine whether this was overreach uh, and hold the government to account for that.
0: All right. It's going to be an interesting week, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Always great to talk to you, Mike. Take care. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen.
1: We have many leaders, many meetings with leaders from our hemisphere, including bilateral meetings with President Biden.
0: Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Raymond D'Souza argues the summit of the Americas boycott is a sign that freedom is regressing in Latin America. D'Souza writes... The boycott by Mexico and others is a powerful symbol of how Latin American priorities have changed. The freedom agenda of the 1990s has been left behind, replaced by a new agenda that emphasizes sovereignty and cultural solidarity. In that, the inability of the Los Angeles summit to attract full participation is indicative of broad global trends that are retrenching precisely on the globalization push of the past 30 years, That a regional power like Mexico would prefer solidarity with Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela over the freedom agenda is troubling. In the Toronto Star, Jamie Watt argues, Dodgy tricks turn voters off politics, and no party has a monopoly on bad behavior. Watt writes, As the Ontario campaign ads finally fall silent and much of the political rhetoric takes a pause, We need to reflect on the corrosive influence divisive partnership, hyperbole, and ambush politics have had on our collective confidence in our precious system. Long-term trust in our system has been actively traded away for a need to achieve short-term wins. All parties are guilty of less-than-stellar behavior. Politicians need to learn to resist what is currently an insatiable urge to knock their opponents down whenever they can and think instead... About their role in protecting the health of our system for the long run. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun argues inflation and interest rate hikes will hurt for years to come. The Sun writes things are going to get worse before they get better. That was basically the message from the Bank of Canada on Thursday, a sobering and frustrating one, to say the least. Anyone who is renewing a mortgage in a few years from now is going to be paying a lot more on their monthly payments. Factor in the increase in groceries and gas and how not everyone is going to see their income rise during this period. And we have a recipe for disaster. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will be in private meetings in Toronto. Minister of Mental Health Carolyn Bennett will make a funding announcement supporting mental health promotion across Ontario. And Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson will attend the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada conference in Toronto. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, June 13th. Tune into to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.